Were you all beginning to think I wasn't coming back? I know it's been a long time, and I said I was going to start putting out episodes more frequently, and then I didn't do it, and I hate not delivering on my promises, um, but I do have a pretty pretty meaty episode for you all today, and it's going to be a two-parter, and there's actually going to be a little part three follow-up as well, so hopefully that makes up for it a little bit. Um, this is the 100th episode, and this podcast started as a COVID project. I had no idea where it was going to go. I had no idea if anybody was going to even listen to it. And it's just exceeded my expectations. Um, I've met so many people and um, my listeners are great and and you all send me messages and um, it's just really cool to know all of you. And we all share uh, an interest and I would even say a passion for the state of Kentucky and its history and its curiosities, I would say. So, um, yeah, today I actually, I was working on a different story for the hundredth episode and I got like halfway through this book I was reading and I just, I just wasn't feeling it. So I switched gears and that's why this took a little longer to get out. Um, but one thing that I love, uh, is prohibition era history. And I love, bootlegging and I love the politics of that time period and I I just think it's all very interesting Uh, Boardwalk Empire one of my favorite shows and so that's how I landed on this topic and so today we're going to talk about the history of Newport Kentucky Newport, Kentucky is up north, just below Cincinnati, east of Covington, across the Licking River. It was incorporated in 1795 and named for the British explorer, Admiral Christopher Newport. Um, He was captain of the ship that made the first voyage to Jamestown, so kind of a big deal. And the guys who built Newport thought that it was going to be this huge metropolis. I mean, they they thought it was going to be what Cincinnati turned into, Um, but obviously that's not what happened. By 1830, there were only 715 people living in Newport. It was isolated. Uh, There wasn't a bridge connecting it to Covington until 1854, and there wasn't a bridge connecting it to Cincinnati until shortly after that. So there wasn't really a way in and out to the bigger cities, and this might lead someone to believe that nothing much went on in this small town, but that would be an incorrect assumption because Newport became a central hub for organized crime. Now, a lot of what I'm going to be telling you about in these episodes is from the book Wicked Newport, and that's by Dr. Thomas Barker, Dr. Gary Potter, and Jenna Meglin. And I, I want to say, this book is great, had a lot of good information, had some great photos, which I'll share on social media. It was um, kind of messy, like it jumps around a lot. And so if this episode seems like I'm just going from topic to topic really quickly, um, I did... I did base a lot of this right off the book, so um, that's why. Now, the other thing I want to mention is 
If you aren't familiar with some of the bigger names in organized crime during the Prohibition era, you should still be able to keep up, but it probably wouldn't hurt to do a little pause and Google just for context um, if you don't know who people like Meyer Lansky are. Okay. All right, here we go. So we'll start in the early 1900s, before Prohibition. Newport had become this safe haven for criminals, for, quote, outlaws, desperados, bank robbers, and kidnappers to hide from the law, so much so that it came to be known as Little Mexico. And it was that way because it was a sleepy little place. It was under the radar. But geographically, it was convenient for a lot of different people. And it also became a place where lots of social connections were made. For example, in 1917, Howard the Hillbilly Vice and Charles Kroger got together and they brought the first slot machine to Newport. And this slot machine was still a fairly new invention, right? Um, they had seen one advertised in a magazine in Chicago. And so they bought one and they put it in a candy store. <laughs> Um, and then a little while after that, I guess they realized it might be better in a beer garden. So they moved it there and they started making way more money off of it. And that, that first thing sort of became the business model, right? Oh, the slot machine doesn't go in the candy store. It goes in the bar. <laughs> um, there was a problem, though. This slot machine kept breaking down. And so these guys would have to order parts from Chicago and wait for them to get in. Um, but by this point, some other guys in Newport saw how profitable this machine could be. So they ordered some slot machines. But this other group of guys also found a repairman that they trained to work on them in-house. And so they didn't have to um, hire out to get the, the machine fixed. Um, and you start to see this competition where everyone is buying a slot machine and putting it in their place of business. And so all of a sudden, Newport is just filled with slot machines. Even this early on, there was a certain group of people watching these machines pop up in Newport and thinking, mm, this might not be such a good thing. So a grand jury was actually formed to take a look at the effects of having these slot machines in town. And they released this statement based on their findings. Quote, the citizens of our county do not realize the magnitude of slot machine gambling. The daily income averages $8 per machine. It's estimated that about 150 machines are in operation. This means about half a million per year. The tremendous possibilities of corruption are plainly seen. And brother, they weren't wrong. Um, and other forms of gambling were surfacing in Newport around this time too. You could bet on billiards games or card games in pool halls. And the invention of the telephone made it super easy to just call in a bet with your bookie. 
But all of this was done underground, in the shadows, because gambling was so morally unacceptable. And so it wasn't done out in the open. And there was definitely a stigma around it that was way more serious than there is even today. So um, Howard Weiss, who I mentioned a second ago, Howard the Hillbilly Weiss, he played a big role in the beginning of organized crime in Newport. Um, he's one of the ones that, that bought one of those first slot machines. And he sold it because uh, it kept breaking down. And he went back to his previous job, which was acting as bodyguard to some shady characters, we'll say. And then when Prohibition started, he became a bodyguard for some bigger bootleggers. And then one night, uh, Vice won $6,000 on a dice game. And this was at a speakeasy called The Gun Club. So he wins $6,000 at The Gun Club. And he was playing a game with the owner of the club. And the owner looked at him and he was like, I don't have $6,000. And so he said, you'll just have to take my bar. And so Howard Weiss became the owner of the gun club. Running a speakeasy at the beginning of Prohibition wasn't too bad, okay? Because there was still plenty of good quality liquor in circulation in the Newport area. But then as time went on, the supply became depleted. And the alternative was just, a lot of the times, not as good as the real stuff, okay? So the quality of the liquor got worse. Now, this isn't always the case. I know in a lot of places, it got stronger, it got better. Um, But getting the supply became kind of complicated. A lot of it was coming in through smuggling operations from Canada, Europe, and Cuba. And so Howard Weiss was watching all of this just kind of play out in front of him. And he decided that becoming a bootlegger would be much more lucrative than buying the liquor and selling it to customers at the club. And so he sold the gun club and he bought a fleet of cars outfitted for smuggling liquor. And he had these connections with people in Georgia and Florida where he would get the booze and then distribute it to places like Cleveland and Detroit. I recently read a book called The Ghost of Eden Park about the life of George Remus, and it's good. I recommend it if you haven't read it. But um, I think it's what got me in the mood to do this topic. Um, But if you don't know about George Remus, he was a very big player out of Cincinnati. Um, He was originally a lawyer and then a pharmacist. And then when Prohibition was passed, when the act was passed, um, he, you know, switched to bootlegging. So he actually approached Vice and asked him to partner with him. And Vice said no. He wanted to stay independent. So he was doing pretty well. And Vice had big plans for himself, uh, but they were unfortunately cut short by a love affair. So he got involved with the girlfriend of the owner of the Kentucky Inn back in Newport. And one night, he and this inn owner got into it over this woman, and they ended up shooting at each other, and Vice killed the guy. 
So he was arrested, charged with murder, found guilty, and sentenced to life. But he was released, I believe in the early 1930s. And so he got out of prison. He bought a hog farm that supplied pork to the Newport casinos. But that hog farm also happened to hide 150 gallons still. So even though Vice wasn't running a big liquor operation up and down the coast anymore, he just couldn't quit the liquor game altogether. Now, Vice doesn't come up again in the story of Newport, but he's worth mentioning because he was definitely a big character in the origin story, if you will. So now I guess we should switch gears a little bit and talk about the Volstead Act. And again, if you've seen Boardwalk Empire or you watch any of those like Chicago mob movies, you're familiar with it. It was passed by Congress in 1919, and it banned the distribution and sale of alcohol. And when they did this, organized crime syndicates saw nothing but dollar signs. Um, Bars turned into speakeasies, or in Kentucky, they were called tiger blinds. Uh, I had to look that up. I didn't know why they were called that. Um, They were sometimes called tiger blinds because these establishments would put stuffed tigers in the windows to let potential customers know they had alcohol. But um, prohibition really changed a person's role in their community. Quote, In addition, the sweeping nature of prohibition laws, by definition, suddenly and dramatically increased the number of criminal actors in a community by automatically converting those whose activities were legal on one day into organized crime the next day. And it's sort of like the old saying, you always want what you can't have. The demand for alcohol skyrocketed. And it changed a lot of people's opinion of organized crime. Because before, these criminals were doing things that were morally frowned upon or even dangerous to society. But now, they were providing a much needed and appreciated service to the general public. So, prohibition kind of changed the relationship between organized crime and the average citizen. The other thing prohibition did was put politicians and law enforcement in bed with organized crime to a degree previously unreached. A lot of politicians did not agree with prohibition, especially in states like Ohio and Kentucky, and a lot of local law enforcement were happy to receive payoffs to look the other way. According to the Treasury Department, over 3,000 illegal speakeasies were operating in the Cincinnati, northern Kentucky region during Prohibition. So that just gives you an idea, I mean, that number of how much local law enforcement was willing to turn an eye to all this. So let's talk a little more about George Remus. Uh, He was a German immigrant who came to the States at three years old in 1876. He was a pharmacist, a criminal lawyer, and when he moved to Cincinnati at the beginning of the Prohibition era, 80% of America's bonded whiskey was being made within 300 miles of Cincinnati. I mean, it was just the center, and he was inspired. Since Remus was a pharmacist, 
he could buy bonded liquor from the Treasury Department for use in medicines. So he would create these pharmaceutical companies that were basically fronts. He got the necessary federal permits, and it's estimated that he owned about 15% of the legal alcohol stock in the entire country. It's just, it didn't all stay legal. But that's how big his operations were. He bought seven distilleries in Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky that had been closed by the Volstead Act, and he could reopen them under the guise that they were for things like rubbing alcohol, varnish, medicine, stuff like that. But at least half of it was going to illegal liquor sales. This operation got so big. In one three-month period, Remus deposited just under $3 million into local banks. It's a lot of money for back then. George Remus was very smart, and he figured out early that a key element of all this was going to be recruiting contacts in local police departments. And once he did that, he made connections with politicians on a local level, and then higher up, and then higher up. His own estimates were that he spent over $20 million on bribes and payoffs. Unfortunately for him, he got raided anyway in 1922. He and 12 associates were arrested, convicted, and at that time he's estimated to have been worth about $70 million. $70 million. His life took a very bizarre turn after his release from, from prison. Actually, even before that. Uh, you really should read the book. It's good. But, quote, It was the progeny of the Remus bootlegging operation who would use the web of corruption he created to establish post-prohibition gambling as the major enterprise in the open city of Newport. It's also worth mentioning that although Remus was obviously king of the bootleggers in that area, there was a lot of fierce competition between smaller operations, and this led to an increase in violent crime, beatings, gunfights, knife fights, murders. So with the prohibition of liquor came the public embrace of gambling. And by the mid-20s, gambling kind of became the main vice and tourist attraction in Newport. After World War I, a lot of people were calling for moral reform in Cincinnati, and so gambling operations were moved to Newport, where people just didn't care so much. It was kind of a free-for-all. And so Newport really became um, what the book calls Cincinnati's Playground. So here's a quote from a Kentucky Post article in 1926. Quote, Reports from many sources in Newport indicate a laxity of law enforcement such as never existed before. Not only are Newport gamblers running full blast, but many Cincinnati gamblers said to be chased from the Queen City are also located within the confines of Newport. Every branch of the law enforcement body has succumbed to the reign of gambling. The police are inactive. The Commonwealth attorney and his detectives and the sheriff's office apparently unmindful of what's going on. There were slot machines in grocery stores at this point. Betting on horse racing? I mean, it was weird if you didn't do it. 
But understand that, like I said, from the beginning, there were attempts to rein in all of this immoral behavior. So let's go back to Christmas Day 1921, and you'll see how this ties in in a second. So the Kentucky State Guard, commanded by Colonel Henry Denhart, was sent into Newport to break strikes at two steel mills. And they had hundreds of soldiers. They brought a machine gun unit and a tank unit. And the strikers were completely undeterred. I mean, things got ugly. There were gun battles in the streets. Um, Eventually it calmed down a little bit, but there was still plenty of tension and no resolution, really. And so into 1922, this conflict was still going on, and the newly elected city commissioner, Thomason, announced around this time that he was planning to start a campaign against gambling and other vices. This was really a sad attempt at reform. A few arrests were made, a couple of small fines were handed out, and some slot machines were removed, but business ultimately went on as usual. Even after Thomason ordered the police chief, Frank Bragel, to crack down on crime, and uh, he even threatened to fire him. So this is about when management and employees at these steel mills started back up. And the governor ordered Denhart and the guard to come back to Newport to break the strike again. And while there, they were also used to enforce this cleanup of the city. So Denhart sent troops to the Citizens Telephone Company, demanding them to supply a list of all unlisted phone numbers in Newport. And they went to the local newspaper stand to get a list of all the people who purchased the daily racing form. And they were hoping to pinpoint who the bookies were and who the patrons were. So they started arresting these guys. But then the mayor, Joseph Herman, would turn around and pardon everyone who got arrested. So the guys, the people who were trying to reform this town We're just hitting roadblocks at every turn. And at this point, you know, Colonel Denhart is doing all this work trying to make this city clean, quote, clean. And he's just fed up with all the ways he's getting stalled. And so in February of 1922, he and 68 of his troops surround the Campbell County Courthouse. That's such a tongue twister. Campbell County Courthouse. They served arrest warrants on Mayor Herman, Police Chief Frank Bragel, State Attorney Conrad Matz, Officers John Sheehan and Charles Bullitt, and Detective Edward Hamilton. And all of them were charged with failing to discharge their official duties in that they knew about illegal activities and refused to do anything about them, which will become such a common theme here. So so the state guard and this colonel have now charged all these officials with crimes. And then a day later, Colonel Denhart orders his tanks to roll over and crush confiscated slot machines and stills in the street in front of the courthouse. Uh, This act was actually pretty common. A lot of prohibition enforcers did stuff like this to make a statement, you know. Uh, My great-grandfather was a constable, um, and then he was the city alcoholic beverage administrator in Louisville. 
And there are photos of him in old newspapers. And the headline says something like, there's one that says, Bartholomew wrecks $1,700 slot machines. Um, and it's a picture of him and one other guy with these broken slot machines. So, um, yeah, but this was a public display of crackdowns that were absolutely meant to intimidate and often did not have the desired effect. Most citizens of Newport were unimpressed by this excessive force and these kind of violent, showy displays, like using the tank in, the, in front of the courthouse. It was not well-received. Denhart went on to raid 30 speakeasies and 11 stills. 38 people were arrested, guns were seized, slot machines and cars were confiscated. And in response to all this, angry crowds started gathering. Uh, people were kind of protesting the, um, the raids. So in April of 1922, almost none of the elected officials and police officers arrested by Denhart were indicted. A jury refused, except for the police chief, interestingly enough. Um, there's no record, though, of his conviction or even a trial, and he continued to serve. Uh, he was later found guilty of influencing voters in the 1923 election. Uh, he went on to appeal his conviction, and the Court of Appeals reversed the decision, and he remained the chief of police until 1932. So there were two things Colonel Denhart did that really got him booed out of Newport once and for all. And one of those things was the blue laws. Um, these basically mandated that no business activity could happen on a Sunday at all. All business had to just shut down. People really didn't like that. Then, then he banned the playing of baseball near one of the mill zones where the strikers were. And that was just the final straw for Newport. You can't ban baseball. And so when Denhart and his troops left Newport, everything just went back to normal as far as vice operations went. So that brings us to the Kamek raids. And I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. It's C-A-M-M-A-C-K. Kamek? Kamak? In June of 1931, Newport got a visit from the Attorney General J.W. Kamak. And he took control of the city and county police, and he staged three raids on gambling dens. These were mostly handbook operations. And the first one was very successful. Six people were arrested, and 150 gamblers were forced out, and the place was shut down. But the second and third ones, those two had been tipped off, and no one was at the establishments when law enforcement arrived. So ultimately... This whole ordeal was seen as such a blunder because there were so many gambling businesses operating in plain sight that weren't even a little bit threatened by these raids. So after these three, the attorney general just left and basically accepted his defeat, left with his tail between his legs. And basically that was the moment when everyone was like, you know what? Newport is just too far gone. Um... 
And what they knew is that even if anybody gets arrested, a jury won't indict them. I mean, they had seen that play out in real time. So entering the 1930s, law enforcement had a new problem because liquor was legal again. So it was one less way for them to infiltrate these other forms of organized crimes. Organized crime, rather. So some bootleggers went into legal distilling operations, but others found the gambling business to be too lucrative to give up. So some went in full bore in that direction. But because gambling was still prohibited, that limited the competition of who would provide these services to the public because not everyone was willing to run an illegal business, right? Um, So it, it came down to just the gangsters to run the books and buy the slot machines and so on and so forth. This is when you started seeing the emergence of bust-out joints. These were gambling venues, small-scale, where you could play cards or dice or slots, but the games leaned so far in favor of the house that customers would leave busted out or broke. Um, And these were sketchy places. Um, A lot of times, if you beat the house, you'd get slipped knockout drops and then you'd get robbed. A lot of these places also offered sports betting, and many of the owners of these clubs also owned prostitution rings. And the two industries really would go hand in hand, which we'll talk about more in a minute. There were also some smaller operations popping up in the more rural areas outside of Newport. Uh, One was the Green Lantern Nightclub, which was right outside of town. It was run by Ernest Buck Brady, who was George Remus's transport director. And Newport was, quote, thoroughly segregated. And the Green Lantern was primarily for African Americans. And it was successful. And it was well run. And its advantage was that it was kind of out of reach for any police force. Um, Newport cops really weren't venturing that far out. Interestingly, this particular club had a no-weapons policy. You had to check your weapons at the door. But then back in downtown Newport, two high-class casinos appeared in the 1930s. So I'll introduce you to Peter Schmidt. He was an associate of George Remus, and he bought a hotel on Monmouth Street in Newport with his bootlegging money, and he called it the Glen Hotel. He opened it during Prohibition, so it started with illegal alcohol, a few slot machines, very small casino, and a handbook. Um, Schmidt actually went to prison for a little while, but when he got out, he was able to expand the casino, but he still wanted more. So he used the profits from the Glen Hotel to purchase a former speakeasy, uh, it was called the Old Tuck Inn, three miles south of Newport in Southgate. And he redid this old club, and he called it the Beverly Hills Club, which opened as Newport's premier carpet joint. And they were called carpet joints because of the flooring, right? Being carpeted instead of, like, low-grade sawdust, old floors. That's how you knew a place was high class, if it had carpet. So there it was, the Beverly Hills Club first real casino in Newport. And this place was visited by big names like Frank Sinatra. 
you're maybe familiar with the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire. Um, That's a quick story for a different day. But Peter Schmidt was opening this club just south of town. Meanwhile, the Cleveland Four had their eyes set on Newport. So the Cleveland Four, this was Mo Dalitz, Morris Kleinman, Louis Rothkopf, and Sam Tucker. These guys had a monopoly on several areas, starting with Lake Erie. The four started the Arrowhead Club, which was actually in the Cincinnati suburb of Branch Hill. It opened in the 30s, and it was on its way to becoming a big deal. Um, Unfortunately for them, it was raided in 1937, and it was shut down. But the Cleveland Four weren't too worried about that because they had something else in mind. Mo Dalitz of the Cleveland Four had visited the Beverly Hills Club and liked what he saw. He wanted to either buy it or partner with Peter Schmidt, but Schmidt wasn't interested, and the Cleveland Four were not used to being refused. So in 1936, someone set fire to the club, and there was this whole conspiracy over who did it, whether it was the Cleveland Four or some of George Remus's associates. It was just this whole very tense situation, and a big part of that was because a five-year-old who was related to the caretaker of the property was killed in the fire. But Peter Schmidt was undeterred. He rebuilt the club and reopened in 1937, and this is when it reopened as the Beverly Hills Country Club. It was much more elegant with chandeliers and oak paneling. And its opulence sort of became a model for the fancier casinos that would pop up out west later on. And the fact that Schmidt rebuilt and made his club even bigger and better just upset the Cleveland Four. Uh, They were not happy. In the summer of 1937, a group of men with submachine guns robbed the club. Schmidt had to hire heavily armed guards, and unfortunately, there was so much harassment and intimidation that he finally had to give up. He was like, you know what, it's not worth it. So he did end up selling the Beverly Hills Club to the Cleveland Four on November 18, 1940, and Peter Schmidt retired to his original property, the Glen Hotel. So... You have the Cleveland Four, the Cleveland Syndicate. There were other big names popping up in Newport. Um, There were the Levinson brothers, Ed, Lewis, and Mike, or it might be Louie. They directly represented a national syndicate led by Meyer Lansky. And when these more powerful players showed up in Newport, it meant the local organized crime groups had to either partner up with the bigger ones, or they probably wouldn't make it. For example, uh, there was a bar called The Flamingo, owned by Art Dennert, and it was right downtown. It was upscale and only getting better, and the Levinson brothers forced Dennert out of his own club and took over and added a bookmaking parlor in the back. And while they're doing that, the Cleveland Four took over a big casino called the Yorkshire Club. And they reported later that they were making about $2 million a month from the bets at the Yorkshire. 
They also took over the Merchants Club on 4th Street. And at this point, the big guys in charge were seeing how profitable this area could be. So they started investing money from their other operations into their businesses in Newport. So there's just this influx of cash. And so by the early 1940s, there was a massive expansion in Newport gambling. This was good for the big guys. It was also good for the locals who still owned smaller casinos and clubs. You know, the the few that hadn't been bought out. Um, So I mentioned the smaller clubs, right? There were still plenty of those. They weren't as fancy as the big casinos. They weren't exactly a direct threat to the major players, but they did bring their share of problems. One was that there were still lots of them. And just the fact that there were so many casinos in one condensed area, that made it hard for law enforcement to ignore. The bigger problem was that apparently these smaller places ran rigged games. The way they explain it in Wicked Newport is that the owners from the bigger syndicates, like from New York and Cleveland, they understood that you didn't have to rig the games because it was simple math that, in general, the house wins. You don't have to cheat to win. Um, But these local club owners were a little more desperate. They needed that extra money to, to keep up with the bigger casinos, so they rigged their games, and people started complaining. And of course, that made all the casinos look bad because you assume if one is doing it, they're all doing it. So this created some added tension between the local club owners and guys like the Levinson brothers. Uh, One other thing I want to mention that became pretty prevalent was layoff banking. Newport became a hub for organized crime layoff banks. Quote, A layoff bank operates as a kind of insurance company for illegal bookmakers. Bookies, who are getting too much betting action on a particular fight, horse race, or sporting event, sell some of their betting action to larger, better financed layoff banks. The layoff bank divides the risk with the bookie, and also, of course, divides the profits with the bookies, all for a fee or handling charge. Um, So this was happening a lot in Newport. Um, One of the big ones was the Bobbin Realty Company. It was later said to have been the biggest layoff bank in the country at one time. So we have to talk about prostitution now. Um, It was a big part of this. And um, the way that they set it up is kind of unique and and very clever. Newport had several one-way streets. And so... Many residents of Newport worked across the bridge in Cincinnati, so they would cross using a one-way street, Monmouth Street, and when they came home from work at night, they would use one-way York Street to get home. So planning accordingly, they set up what were called day houses on Monmouth Street that operated during the morning and early afternoon. And then night houses were a street over on York for folks coming home at night. Quote, by the 1940s, there were 300 women working in the brothels of downtown Newport, an area less than one square mile in size. At one time in the 1940s and 50s, 
There were nine brothels within two blocks of the police station. And they had this set up where taxi drivers would get kickbacks for promoting the brothels to visitors. They'd get like 40% kickbacks from the fees realized by the brothels. And competition was fierce, okay, because there were so many. And so these taxis driving out of towners were a great way to advertise. This competition, though, was just another thing that created tension between the local owners and people like Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel. So things started getting pretty messy in 1943. Um, so I'll introduce you now to Charles Lester. <laughs> what a character this guy is. Charles Lester was the Cleveland Four's attorney. He worked for the Four and... Then, for whatever reason, in 1943, he turned on them and started conspiring with Peter Schmidt. Schmidt wanted to be a big player in the Newport casino scene. Okay, he was a local. He was small potatoes, but he wanted the action that the big syndicates were getting. So, in September of 1943, Charles Lester filed a civil suit naming 92 people as operatives of the Cleveland Syndicate and, quote, demanding that an injunction be issued requiring the local police and prosecutors to enforce Kentucky's gambling laws. Lester also hired a co-complainant, Jesse Lewis, a deputy attorney general, and together they went to a courthouse in a neighboring county. They found a judge to sign a restraining order against illegal casinos and ordering the Newport police to raid the casinos and confiscate their equipment. The interesting part here is that they raided the Beverly Hills, the Merchants Club, the Yorkshire, but they also raided Schmidt's Club, the Glen Rendezvous. And, I mean, that had to be part of the plan because it would have looked strange if they didn't. But Peter Schmidt was in on this. And so he only took a, quote, marginal hit because he knew it was coming and he was able to hide a bunch of his equipment. But at the other casinos run by the bigger syndicates, over $100,000 in equipment was seized. Multiple people were arrested. Here's the catch, though. Not everyone was on board with these raids, and in fact, Campbell County officials ordered the equipment be returned, to be returned to the casinos within a few days of the raids. The men indicted after the raids never went to trial, and they were all elected to public office in the upcoming election. So all of these guys turned around after being released and ran for office and got elected. Um, and then the the big guys like the Cleveland syndicate they they knew that Schmidt had a hand in that in those raids and so for fear of retaliation Schmidt ended up selling the Glen to the Levinson brothers and Arthur Dennert who worked for Meyer Lansky and that was to keep it safe from the Cleveland four he said if I sell it to this other big group then I'm out of it right um, the sketchy thing after that, though, is that Arthur Dennert ended up dying in a car accident shortly after this sale, and the rumors were that the Cleveland Four arranged this crash. 
Um, that's not been substantiated by any evidence as far as I know, but it was the 1940s, so it was very easy to get away with stuff like that. So when Dennert died, the Cleveland Four claimed his share of the Flamingo, and they put one of their guys in charge to co-manage the casino with Levinson employees. It's all very, very messy. Um, there's another kind of violent story from this time period. Um, it's the Farley brothers, Taylor and Rip Farley. These two were from Clay County, Kentucky. They'd been bootleggers during Prohibition. And then afterwards, Taylor Farley opened a small brothel in Newport. But it wasn't doing very well, so he went looking for other work. And he got a job at the Flamingo, working for Louis Levinson. One day, his brother, Rip, walked into another club managed by Levinson, the Yorkshire, and robbed a dealer at gunpoint, making off with $2,500. So I guess Rip was seeing how much money they were making at the club where his brother was working, thought there was an opportunity there. As you can imagine, this didn't end well for the Farleys. Less than a week later, the two were leaving the Flamingo when a large black car drove by and a man in the car shot at both of them with a sawed-off shotgun, and Rip died. Um, Taylor was shot in the chest, but survived. The man who shot them was Danny Myers, and two days later, he was found dead in a parking lot in Pittsburgh in a car stolen from a used car lot in Cincinnati. Uh, There was this whole investigation. The Flamingo ended up losing its liquor license, Um, Taylor Farley left town for a while. He did come back to Newport a few years later to work at the 345 Club. 345 Club? I don't know. Um, But this is just an example of what was going on pretty regularly in Newport. And it was always covered up quickly, both by the syndicates and by law enforcement, because it wasn't good for business, the violence, right? But it happened. It happened all the time. So that brings us to Screw Andrews. Man, this guy too. Another absolute character. So Andrews started out as a moonshiner in the Cincinnati suburbs. Then he opened some liquor stores and newspaper stands in primarily black neighborhoods around Cincinnati. But by the 1940s, he was running casinos in Newport too. And in the late 40s, Andrews decided to, quote, move against African-American-owned casinos in Newport. So he convinced the police to raid the Sportsman Club, which was owned by uh, Steve Payne, and that was in May of 1947. So the following year, Payne was murdered, and then Screw Andrews bought his club. Then in 1952, Andrews bought the Alibi Club, which was another gambling club for black patrons. And he did this one via shootout, Uh, whatever that means. I guess he just went in there and shot it up and said, this is my club now. Then in 1954, this guy who Andrews had previously run out of town came back to town and opened the Coconut Grove. And Andrews knew that this club would be in direct competition with his businesses. And he was just sick of this other guy, so he shot and killed him. And Screw Andrews was charged with murder. 
However, there was no police investigation, and he pled self-defense, and he was acquitted. Eventually, he was convicted on tax uh, evasion charges and sent to federal prison for six years, but he definitely got away with murder. Probably twice, maybe more than that. I'm going to end part one there. Um, what, what I really wanted to drive home is that there's this very obvious pattern that spans decades of crime and um, <laughs> very violent behavior that happens over and over again with no consequences, no repercussions, and law enforcement either actively participating or at least turning a blind eye to it. So. In part two, we'll talk a little bit more about attempts at reform. We'll talk about some very prominent trials and the outcomes. And then we'll talk a little bit about how it all sort of fizzled out. Um, And then little part three will be about um, the hauntings of Newport, because I couldn't just not throw that in. So stay tuned, and thank you so much for listening.